Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode eight in the book of 1 Peter entitled, Living for God as the End of All Things Draws Near, where we'll discuss 1 Peter chapter four, verses one through 11. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? Well, I think it's really important for us to understand the overall context of of Peter. Peter's very consistent, and he's writing to aliens and strangers, uh, Christians who are living a godly life in a very hostile world. And so again and again, we've got the idea of a very hostile audience of people Mm. watching us as we live our lives. And he's going to mention that in this section, people who heap abuse on Christians because they won't join with them Mm. in the same flood of dissipation. But as he says in this text, the end of all things is near. So it's vital for us to live that holy life because judgment day is coming and it's coming for them too. And we should have a heart of compassion for our enemies who are heaping abuse on us to realize they can be rescued by the gospel. If you, we will just live a holy life and preach fearlessly and treat them with love. And as he's going to say in this section, use our spiritual gifts, hospitality, um, you know, gifts of service, gifts of speaking the word of God, serving gifts and speaking gifts. If we do these kinds of things, uh, God's uh, great work will continue. So that's the context here of this, of this section. Well, this is a rich passage, and I'm looking forward to our discussion today. So I'm going to go ahead and read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Andy, how do verses 1 and 2 link Christ's suffering in the flesh with our personal holiness? And how does thinking of ourselves as having died with Christ help us to resist temptations? Well, again and again, Peter is pointing Christians to a holy life, a godly life, a good life. Not a life of retaliation, not a life of getting angry at the persecutors or wanting to to strike back, um, but instead to win them over by our good behavior. Mm. And so that's been that consistent theme that Christ didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats, but entrusted himself to God. And that he died that we might live for God and die to sins ourselves. And then in chapter 3, he says, 
you know, if we want to love life and see good days, we need to keep our, our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking lies. We must, you know, turn from evil and do good. So again and again, Peter is wanting us to do good works. Mm. And what he's saying here now at the beginning of chapter four is the same, he says, therefore, so we're connecting to the same ideas, Christ died and rose again, and we are united with him spiritually. We died with him to sin and to death and evil, and we rise again with him to newness of life. So we should have the same attitude in us that was in Christ. This death, once for all, is a death to sin. And once you have died, Peter's saying, you're dead to sin mm. forever. So that means you're now set free, as Paul argues in Romans 6, to live a resurrected life, to walk in the power of the Spirit, having united, being united with him in death, we are raised in newness of life. We can walk in newness of life by the power of the Spirit, Paul says in Romans 6, 7, and 8, the Spirit-filled life. Peter's giving us that same version. We died with Christ to sin. Now we can live a holy life. Now, Peter also says that we should arm ourselves with a certain mindset, mm -hmm. attitude, or way of thinking. Mm -hmm. The language is militaristic, as though we're right. equipping ourselves for some sort of battle. How is the struggle to resist temptation mm -hmm. like a battle? It is a powerful battle. You know, our, our flesh is, is, is wired in, in, in through years of yielding to lusts, uh, wired habitually to do evil. And when we come to faith in Christ, we begin that battle. It's a battle of mortification. We have to, by the Spirit, put to death the, the misdeeds of the body. Fundamental to that, according to the Apostle Paul, fundamentally, is to count ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 6. That's the centerpiece. I should think of myself as dead with Christ, united with him in his death. So we died to that old way of life, that old way of, of living for wickedness and lusts and evil things that Peter's going to describe here very mm. plainly. We died to that life. We died to it forever. We never live in it again. It's a once for all death to sin, but you have to think of yourself as dead because you're not physically dead. You're still living in a world of temptation. So you see a carousing party, a drinking party, and you used to join in with them, but you're not gonna do that anymore. You died to that life. Mm. It, it should be a once for all uh, clear break that we make with that old way of living. So Peter's really arguing for the same thing Paul is in Romans 6 and 7 and 8. You know, He's saying you should think of yourself as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Mm. Now in verse two, what two ways of living are contrasted, and how does this teach us, like Psalm 90 says, to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom? All right, well, in verse two, Peter gives us a choice. We can either live the rest of our earthly life for, for lusts, for evil human desires, or we can live uh, the rest of our life for the will of God. It's the same thing that Paul says in Romans six. We, we either, either slaves to sin, which leads to death, or slaves to God, which leads to righteousness and to eternal life in heaven. And so we have the same choice. We have to consider ourselves dead to sin, and therefore we are slaves to God. Now, fundamental this is the idea that human beings were built to serve or to be slaves. We're going to serve someone. You're either gonna serve the one master, which is sin and Satan and the flesh and, and death, all of that, that's that old regime. We're either gonna serve that or we're gonna serve God or righteousness 
or goodness or holiness or life. It, it, just different ways of describing, but they're really two ways to live. And Peter's saying that you've got a choice. The rest of your earthly life, how are you going to live? Mm. Am I going to live for lusts am I, or are I going to live for the word, uh, for the will of God? Yeah, that's very helpful. Mm. Now, you mentioned that one overarching theme of this letter really is holy lives in a hostile world. How mm. does verse 3 help motivate us toward holiness in a hostile world. Right. So he's talking about the way that the, the that Peter's audience, the way that these Christians used to live. So you're talking about pagans. We're talking about things, you know, before the gospel came to town, um, before before it was preached. You have all this paganism and you have these these temple prostitutes and you have this this wicked lifestyle. And Peter lists these kinds of things, you know, these lusts that you used to live in. And I think it's interesting in verse three, he says, you spent enough time doing that. Mm. You've done that. Talk about been there, done that. Yeah. You you live that life. Mm. Paul says the same thing. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Those things result in death. Why would you wanna do them anymore? Do you really need to go do some more experimentation in carousing and detestable idolatry and drunkenness? and sexual immorality? Do you need to dabble with that a little more and remember what that whole life was all about? Mm. Peter said, you've already done that. You spent enough time doing that. It's, it's actually a little facetious. They shouldn't have spent any time doing it, hmm. but they spent a lot of time doing it. He said, you spent enough time. You've done that enough. It's time to move on. And even worse, these people are still doing that. And I don't know if it's misery loves company or I don't know, people just feel more secure if they can get as many people, hmm. they can recruit as many people uh, to do those same kinds of things that they're doing. Paul talks about the same thing at the end of Romans 1. Not only do they do these very things, they, but they approve of those who practice them. They try to entice people into this lifestyle. Come join with us. Mm -hmm. Kind of like Proverbs 1, we'll share a common purse. Join, <laughs> join the life of a highway robber. Uh, so these people are saying, come join with us. And you're saying, no, I'm, I'm just not going to do that anymore. What, do yeah. you think you're better than us? I'm not saying that. Yeah. I'm just saying I'm done doing those evil things. I've done them enough. And then they begin to abuse you. Mm -hmm. They mock you. They get angry at you or hostile. It's an example of this in, um, in the account of Sodom and Gomorrah where the angels come to rescue Lot. And uh, the wicked men of Sodom were speaking about Lot as though he had come there to judge them. And we know from 2 Peter that Lot didn't partake in those things. He wouldn't take part in it. He was, he was separate from that. Now, he had some other issues going on in his family and mm. his life, but he didn't do it. And so they said, have you come here as an outsider to judge us? They felt judged by him mm. just because he didn't participate. Mm. Well, these people are gonna do the same thing. And if you don't jump in with them and with both feet, if you don't get drunk and vomit like they do, they're going to think you think you're, you're better than them. Mm. And First John says the same thing. You know, why did Cain hate his brother Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous and he hated him. Jesus said, the reason the world hates me is I testify that what it does is evil. Mm. When you start doing that, you're going to get abused. So Peter, in all of these chapters, it seems, yeah. is writing to a persecuted minority, giving them strength to stand fast. Yeah, it's so helpful seeing that logical progression from uh, verse 3 into verse 4. And it really seems that in this way, Christians and non-Christians may even agree. We think that the other is just not making any sense by the yeah. way that they're living. A Christian would look at that life and say, I, I can't live that way anymore. And the non-Christian looks at the way a Christian would not mm -hmm. join them in their 
sin and say, how could you live like that? Why wouldn't you join in? Uh, That's this an interesting lifestyle? point you make. You know, we each think the other's crazy. Right. You know, the non Christians think we're crazy, we think they're crazy. But we know what the truth is. Mm. Our eyes have been opened. We were blind. And now we can see mm. this whole thing. And we can see how God is the one that made every pleasure. God made the pleasure of wine. He did not make the pleasure of drunkenness. Mm. God made the pleasure of, of marital relations, we could call it biblically. He did not make the pleasure of fornication and adultery and carousing and orgies and all this. And so for us, our eyes are open. We realize that whole thing is, that's the way of death. It's a way of corruption and addiction and dissipation and death. And you see it. Now, you don't have to be insulting. You shouldn't be. But if you just say no, I'm just not coming with you anymore. I'm not doing that anymore. Mm. They're going to heap abuse on you. They're going to get angry. But some of them actually might start to look at what they're doing. They might realize the disgusting lives they're living. But, yeah, Peter's talking about some abuse and some reviling and, and, and uh, you know, maligning, I guess, is one of the translations mm -hmm. that they heap on you. And it's amazing because really the way that we know what's in store for those who do take part in this is found right here in verse 5. So how should verse 5 stand as a warning to the unregenerate as well as Christians? Yeah. So judgment day is coming. Um, you know, uh, Peter says in verse 4, they, they think it's strange that you don't, don't dive in with them into the same flood of dissipation is what my translation has. Um, but a sense of a, a river of evil. It's, it's like sewage, spiritual sewage. Mm. Think about James where he says, um, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. There's a sense of spiritual sewage. And they're asking you to dive in. Mm. It's like, no, no, I'm, I'm not. He lifted me out of the slime pit mm. and he's cleaned me off and he's put a white robe on me. How can I soil it again? Uh, but they don't understand that judgment day is coming that this kind of life leads to the wrath of God, as Romans 2 makes it very plain. They're storing up wrath against themselves for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So they think it's weird. They think we're crazy that we're not diving in with them and they malign us or abuse us. But on judgment day, they're going to have to give an account mm. to the judge of the living and the dead, and that's Jesus. They're going to have to stand before him and give an account for their lives. And they don't think about that. They're not aware, it seems, of judgment day. Yeah, which will be a clear revelation of the wickedness and, and disgustingness of sin, but also mm -hmm. a vindication of those who uh, stood firm in the face of that hostile world. Yeah. Now, verse 6 is a difficult verse, and we've mm -hmm. talked about this a little earlier. Yeah. How should we understand verse 6, and how does it fit into the train of thought in these verses here? Okay, so let's let's go back to the, the hostile audience, and let's talk about some that were, were rescued out of that life of dissipation by the gospel. This is the reason the gospel was preached to those who are now dead. So the idea here is um, dead Christians, all right? And for the last section of their lives, they gave up drunkenness. They gave up sexual carousing. They gave up all that stuff. How are they seen by the pagans? What a waste. Mm. They, they missed some opportunities at pleasure mm. and look at them. Now they're dead. And death ends it, right? Death is, is all there is. It's just, you know, so they could have had this pleasure. You only live once going through this kind of thing and they miss some opportunities. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's the chance you have now. For tomorrow we die, meaning that's the end of it. Right. Yeah, but it isn't the mm. end of it. And what Peter's saying here is the gospel is preached to those Christians who are now dead so that they might 
appear and really are dead the way people do. They're, they die and their bodies don't move any more than the bodies of the pagans move. They're just corpses. But they're made alive in the spirit, as Peter talked about Jesus being made alive in the spirit. They're spiritually alive with God. God doesn't have a body. God the Father has no body. Mm -hmm. And they are in the presence of Almighty God, filled with joy. Mm -hmm. Eternal pleasures forevermore at his right hand. These pagans don't seem to know anything about that. So this is the reason why the gospel was preached. And this is the the reason why you should preach to these carousers and drunks when they're sober and they can understand it. But this is why you should preach it and say, look, judgment day is coming. And there is a message that will rescue us from the judgment, the wrath, and the hell to come. God can rescue you out of this. And yes, you'll die. We all die. The the carousing pagans are going to die and the upstanding righteous Christians who are, according to you anyway, leading a boring life, missing Mm. out on pleasures. Yeah, but here's the thing. They led good lives. They were faithful husbands and fathers or wives and mothers. They didn't live a life of dissipation. They lived upright lives. They died. And then what? Then they went to heaven. And now they're in the presence of God. What Paul says is absent from the body, present with the Lord. They're alive in the spirit as God is in the presence of God. That's the best I can make of verse six. It's not an easy verse. But the reason the gospel was preached was to rescue people out of this flood of dissipation so that when they die, they survive judgment day and go into the presence of the spirit world where God is. I think verse six. That's so good. And Psalm 16, 11, that imagery of the fullness of joy uh, being in the presence of God and really proves the emptiness of worldly pleasures uh, as compared to that. So in verse seven, Peter says that the end of all things is at hand. Mm. What application does Peter make in verse seven and how does being aware of the end of all things empower our prayer lives? Yeah, we Christians, we realize we're heading toward uh, toward a a a final day, the omega day, Mm. the final letter in the Greek alphabet. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We believe in a linear view of history. It had a beginning, it had a middle, and it will have an end. And we're moving toward that end. The end of all things Mm. is near. And he says it's near. And you say, well, you know, he's been saying that for 2,000 years. Mm -hmm. The same thing in the book of Revelation. Jesus said, I'm coming soon three times. I'm coming soon. I'm Mm. coming soon. Revelation 22. It is coming. And the end of the the carousing and detestable idolatry and sexual immorality, it's coming. The end of, of all things is near. The end of the of the quiet, upright lives of Christians in this present evil age is near. Everything is coming to an end. Now, Peter will make this even more super clear in his second epistle, mm. you know, where he talks about a judgment of fire that's going to come that will melt all of the elements of the cosmos. Everything you see, everything you interact with with the five senses, all of it is temporary. And its end is near. Mm. So because of that, he says be clear-minded and self-controlled in a life of prayer, or one translation, so that you can pray. Clear-minded, self-control. All right, first of all, be aware, be sober-minded. See what's going on. Live as though this world is temporary. Be self-controlled concerning lusts, self-controlled concerning sins, self-controlled with what you do with your with your body. Because the end of all things is near, because judgment day is coming, be mm. clear-minded and self-controlled. And I like what he says here in this translation, so that you can pray. Um, what does your translation say in verse seven? For the sake of your prayers. Okay, 
I think it's about the same thing. Mm -hmm. For the sake of means to benefit your prayer life. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing. If you are not clear-minded and self-controlled, it's going to affect your prayer life. Hmm. You, you know, John Bunyan said, prayer drives out sin or sin drives out prayer. Hmm. Think about that. Yeah. Prayer drives out sin or sin drives out prayer. You give in to sin, your prayer life's going to diminish. You won't want to pray. You're going to be restless in prayer. You're going to feel guilty in prayer. You're going to have to same, confess the same sins over and over in prayer. So the idea is fight hard, put on your spiritual armor, say no to temptations, and guess what? You're going to have a robust prayer life, hmm. and it's going to get even stronger. So with the end of all things being near, with the fact that this flood of dissipation is happening, don't get involved in it. Don't go in for that. Instead, I'm urging you, live a life of prayer. Hmm. Now, verse 8 then commands Christians to keep loving one another earnestly. What does it mean that love covers a multitude of sins, and how is covering up sin related to forgiveness? <clears throat> yeah, I think this is really vital, the, the life of love. Peter is just giving uh, a comprehensive Christian life. I want to say one thing, because I, I, we're moving on, um, and it's right that we do that, but this idea of a link between how you live and how you pray is the second time Peter's made this connection. He yeah. does the same thing in the husband-wife relationship. Mm -hmm. In 1 Peter 3, 7, he says, you know, treat your wives, live with them with knowledge in an understanding way, etc., um, and, and treat her well, treat mm. her with dignity uh, as the weaker part, partner and heirs with you so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Mm. So the idea is you want to pray well with your wife, then treat her well. Mm. Treat her like a sister in Christ who's going to share heaven with you. You're going to have a good prayer life. Okay, same thing with your own personal prayer life. Live a holy life, then you can pray well. Then in terms of this life of love, he's saying, look, he's writing to a Christian community and to brothers and sisters in Christ, love each other deeply, fully, completely from the heart. Jesus said by this, well, all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So again, the idea of a hostile audience, they're watching. They wonder why you don't join with them into this flood of dissipation. And maybe they're curious about your life and say, well, why don't you come to one of our services? Hmm. And they come to, to a worship service and a preaching time and all that, and they see a community of genuine Christian love, yeah. love each other deeply. And forgiveness is going to be part of that. In every close relationship, the giving and receiving of forgiveness is essential. Wes, you're a married man. I'm a married man. Wouldn't you agree mm. that you guys need to give and receive forgiveness? Oh, it's been something that from early on we tried to make a priority just because we recognize in ourselves the ability to offend one mm -hmm. another, but also how important that is for reconciliation mm -hmm. to take place. Yeah. And I think in, in understanding that today, I'm likely to need both. I, yeah. need, uh, I need to both give forgiveness, because yeah. I've been sinned against, mm. and I am going to need to seek forgiveness, because mm. I did the sinning. And boy, it takes humility to do both. You need to be humble to genuinely forgive, and you need to be humble to seek forgiveness. Mm. But here he says, love one another deeply from the heart because love covers over a multitude of sins. And certainly that's true of God's love in Christ. He's covered over more sins than we can possibly mm. imagine. And this covering is so vital. We need to realize sin never really goes away. When you've done it, you've done it. And there's no going back. You can't unsay that mean thing you said. You can't undo that evil thing you did. But the atonement in the Old Testament was a covering. It was the day of Yom Kippur is a day of covering. And, and our sins are covered. Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. So here it's that covering. It's like, all right, you've sinned against me. You know what? I'm going to cover it. 
I know it can't go away. I know you did it. I'm not acting like it never happened. But what I am going to do is I'm going to cover it with love. I'm going to realize I'm going to need it too. This is the thing you did to me. Probably I'm going to do it to you. I wish it weren't the case. I wish we'd never sinned against each other. But there's this sweet, loving forgiveness. Without it, there can be no Christian community. It can be no healthy marriages, no friendships. So the love relationship, you have to cover over each other's sins. Yeah, and as you've been explaining this verse, I've, I've also been thinking about 1 Corinthians 13 uh, that we looked at as mm -hmm. you walked through 1 Corinthians yeah. and how as Peter's commanding them to lives of holiness, he's also commanding them to lives of love, both vertically and horizontally, and how yeah. if they were to try to live good lives but not love God or love those in their closest relationships and families or other believers, that there would be a mess going on here, that they would be in a world of hurt um, if both of those weren't active in their lives. Yeah. You think about the word multitude, you know, thousands, hmm. <clears throat> thousands of sins. Like, is it really that bad? That's worse. <laughs> we underestimate how much we sin. Mm. David said, my sins are more numerous than the hairs of my head. And so we're really going to need to do this. So you're in a close Christian community with a lot of other people. We're going to be sinning against each other a lot, and we need to cover it. That's good. What does verse 9 teach us about the challenges of offering hospitality to people? Why is it damaging to grumble while offering <laughs> hospitality to people? And why is hospitality vital? to healthy church life. All right, so hospitality is a great, great ministry. And the idea is opening your home. You know, my home is your home, my food is your food. You know, make yourself at home, make yourself feel comfortable. And, and you know, um, I think it's so real world that Peter says without grumbling. And first of all, <laughs> it shows me that human nature is never really, you know, never really changed. You think about the, the advice that it gives in Proverbs. Mm. You know, if you're sitting with a stingy man, be very careful how much you eat at his table because he's always thinking how much the whole thing costs. And and he says, eat, eat, my friend, but his heart's not with you. And you know it. <laughs> and so you have a bird-sized portion. That's Proverbs basically saying, be really, really careful. He says, mm. put a knife to your throat if you're given to gut gluttony. All right. So just don't do that because yeah. the whole time he's thinking what the bill is. Mm. All right. So what this shows is human nature. We tend to think what this time is costing us time, energy, money, having these people over, you gotta clean the house, you gotta cook the meals, do extra shopping, you gotta get everything ready, and then they come, and they're there, and they're there, and they're there, and, and it's like, you know, it's been so fun having you guys, but they don't take the clue, and they're still there <laughs> for another hour, and you know, and so the thing is, you have to be willing to be generous, mm -hmm. and you have to be willing to forget about the cost. But it's so real world that Peter's saying here, do it without grumbling, don't complain. I think it's important that we act 20 minutes before the people come the way that we will act after they come. You could imagine a couple that's getting ready and they're bickering with each other and they're frustrated and annoyed as they're cleaning the house. It's like, and then the doorbell rings like, oh, Hi. it's so good to see you guys. You look at it's like, it's like oh, answering the phone in the middle of it. <laughs> So don't do that. Yeah. You know, realize that God sees what you're doing and God loves a cheerful giver. Hmm. So if you're going to do hospitality, be a cheerful giver. Now, I think there's there's we probably could do a whole podcast or 10 on the power of hospitality and evangelism mm. and mentoring or mm. discipleship. You want to show a young man what a married life looks like. Have him over to your dinner table. You want to, a woman wants to, an older woman who's had four kids that are grown and gone, showing a younger woman who's just beginning her life as a mother, 
have her come over so that mm. they can talk together. There's hospitality involved. So it's very vital ministry. Uh, evan- evangelistic hospitality is so powerful, having neighbors over. Mm. But anyway, in any case, don't grumble about it. Just yeah. do it cheerfully. That's good. And hospitality is really just one of many ministries, and that's really kind of where Peter goes next. Oh. What does verse 10 teach us about spiritual gifts, and oh. how are spiritual gift ministries vital to a healthy church? Yeah, I mean, spiritual gifts are developed mostly by the Apostle Paul. First Corinthians 12 um, is a very long, detailed descri- description of it. Romans 12 also. Um, he goes into great length about spiritual gifts, which are special abilities given um, to individual Christians for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. So here, Peter uses the same language. Mm. You should use your gifts, and those gifts should be for others. Your gift belongs to the body. It belongs to other people. So use whatever gift. And he breaks the gifts into two main categories, effectively speaking gifts and serving gifts. And I think that's that's about right. Speaking gifts would be, you know, gifts of of teaching, of preaching, of uh, back in, in those days, prophecy in tongues, mm. uh, different things, speaking gifts. And before that, he's got serving gifts, which would include hospitality, a serving gift, uh, administration, different other things. So whatever gifts, you should use your gifts to serve others, you know, faithfully as good stewards of God's grace in its various forms. That's what he's saying about spiritual gifts. How does Peter relate those two patterns you just Mm -hmm. mentioned of spiritual gift ministries to God? Okay. So uh, if you're speaking, if you've got a speaking gift, you should do it as if you're speaking, one translation gives us the oracles of God. Mm. These are the very words of God. As Paul says, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in in those who believe. Somebody Mm. with a, a gift of preaching you have a feeling like you're encountering the living God when you hear them talking. They're very serious about what they're saying. So if, you're, if you've got a speaking gift, you should act as though you're speaking the, the words of the living God. There's a, a power to it. And then if you serve, you should do it with the strength that comes from God. Hmm. You realize that God gave you the food uh, to give out in hospitality. God gave you the, uh, the home in which people uh, can come be there. And he gave you the energy and strength, the relational energy, the joy in friendship of being a good conversationalist. All of these things, every good and perfect gift comes from God. So God is glorified in your speaking gift because you're speaking the words of God Mm. or in your serving gift because you're serving in the strength and in the resources that God himself has provided. Yeah, and seeing that as a stewardship, I love that. So being stewards of God's grace, right? That God Mm -hmm. has given these gifts of grace so that we might be a blessing Mm -hmm. to the people of God. And that's a stewardship, something for us to be responsible for as Mm -hmm. he's given them to us. So then as we conclude, what's the ultimate goal Mm -hmm. of all spiritual gifts? And what final thoughts do you have for us as we put this all together? Well, the end's almost like it seems with a doxology. Mm -hmm. So that in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. So the idea is if you're doing speaking gifts or serving gifts, hospitality, whatever you do, the end is that lost people might be converted and glorify God through Jesus Christ. Mm. And Christians, even if they've been Christians for decades, will be strengthened in their faith and give glory to God through Jesus Christ so that God may be praised for everything. It's just a beautiful ministry that Peter gives us here. So to sum up, the idea here is again, living a Christian life in a hostile world, look at the beauty that we end up with. You're not going to plunge into this flood of dissipation. You know the judgment day is coming. 
You're living above board. You're ready for judgment day. You're ready mm. to die because your sins are forgiven. And you know that the time that you still have left on earth is spent for holiness and not for living for yourself and for your lusts. Instead, you're living for others. And you're living a loving life. You're, you're kind to others and forgiving. Your home is open in hospitality. You're speaking as one speaking the oracles of God. You're serving resources that God gave you and you're sharing them because they really belong to everyone. And in all of these things, God is glorified. What a great way to live your life. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Andy. This has been episode eight in the book of First Peter. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode nine entitled, The Blessings of Christian Suffering where we'll discuss 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.